everyone to episode 17 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. This week you're going to hear my conversation with Sonny Prevetto. He grew up in the Bronx, moved to Vermont with aspirations of being a game warden, but ended up working as a cop until he retired and then became a clinician exclusively working with first responders. Sonny and I talk about his career and how he ended up starting the Vermont Center for Responder Wellness. He's been advocating for the mental health and wellness of police officers for decades. Sonny talks about his personal experience with PTS and how he healed through EMDR. After advocating for a change in the workers' compensation laws in his state, Sonny started the Vermont Center for Responder Wellness with the intention of treating first responders through EMDR. We talk about this treatment modality and the success he has had with first responders. Sonny explains that EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing creates bilateral stimulation of the vagal nerve, which allows people to better tolerate a traumatic memory. Sonny and I discuss some of my favorite things like yoga and mindfulness. At his center, they offer free yoga classes for first responders, acupuncture, Reiki, biofeedback, and peer support services. Sonny talks about how implementing yoga directly impacts heart rate variability, which according to the HeartMath website, refers to the psychophysiological coherence, a state of optimal function. So in a nutshell, our body and brain work better when we're in a state of coherence. We feel better and we perform better. Intentional breathing, which is something practiced during yoga, is one method of achieving the state of coherence. In this episode, I briefly mentioned the Yoga for First Responders program. I want to take a moment to tell you a bit more about this life-saving training. And yes, I said life-saving. I have been a Yoga for First Responders instructor for the past five years and have been teaching recruits, officers, deputies, and other first responders during that time. When I first attended my training, I knew it was special, but five years later, the training has improved far beyond my expectations. This past week, the agency that I work for, the Cedric County Sheriff's Office, hosted a train the trainer for yoga for first responders so that we could add more instructors and offer more classes. It's hard to put into words how amazing it really is. The founder and director, Olivia Mead, who I spoke with in episode four, is not a first responder herself, but she had the forethought to integrate the evidence-based tools of yoga and apply them to police, fire, and other first responder professions with the intention of building resilience, processing stress, and enhancing performance. I have to brag on my local agency right now. The guys who attended the class were all in. They are defense tactics instructors and agency leaders who no doubt will help spread the tools of yoga to their brothers and sisters. There's still a stigma surrounding yoga, especially in police culture. Having men in particular as instructors, like my friends, Tony, Gary, Mike, Danielle, and others is going to be a game changer. And I am excited to see how they take the program to the next level and continue to chip away at the stigma of yoga as just stretching and only something that girls do. The program is based on using the tools of yoga to achieve optimal functioning of the psychophysiological system and mastery of the mind. But what does that really mean? One way that we achieve this is through breathing, breath work. The program teaches several breathing techniques, the foundational one being tactical breathing. 
This alone allows you to directly access your autonomic nervous system by inhaling and exhaling completely, extending your exhale and nose breathing, you reprogram your stress response. The skill is critical for first responders who we can all agree have jobs in which the stress response is regularly activated throughout one shift. There's much more to this training. And if you're interested in learning more, visit yogaforfirstresponders.org or visit episode four and listen to my interview with Olivia. Now back to Sunny. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. I would love to hear from you with questions, suggestions, ideas for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear about in the future. Welcome to the show, Sunny. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I guess I should have asked before we started recording, is it okay to call you Sunny or do you prefer to be called something else? No, um, the only time I was called something else and when I was in trouble. <laughs> and uh, so uh, there were there were five Salvators in my immediate family, not in my one family, but my cousins and stuff like that. So we all got nicknames and I, Sunny wasn't too bad. Okay. All right, cool. I just wanted to make sure. So, uh, you are, for those who are not familiar with you, you are, um, the founder and direct clinical director, I believe of the Vermont center for first responder wellness and your former police officer. And you are just doing amazing things. It sounds like in Vermont. And, um, I am very excited to hear all about it. So if you don't mind just maybe starting out telling everybody a little bit about, um, how things started for you, because you became a police officer before you landed where you are today. True. Um, you know, so back in the 80s, um, I always had a desire to get into law enforcement and uh, born in the Bronx, lived in New York City. Um, uh, NYPD was always, a, you know, a, a dream of mine. And then I thought, well, maybe state police, I'll have a little bit more freedom. Um, and then in the early days of the Internet, I got on the internet and I checked all of New England to see who was testing. And Vermont happened to be testing like in two weeks. So I grabbed my best friend and I said, come on, I wanna go to Vermont. We're gonna take the, the police test, the civil service test. And to be honest with you, my first idea of getting into law enforcement was not to be a police officer, but to be a game warden. Oh. Right? So a kid from the Bronx wants to be a game warden, goes to Vermont with his buddy, takes the test, um, only in Vermont it happens this way. It's about 100 people taking this test, um, and then they score it while you sit there, and then they let you know where you are in the process as well. It's not like you leave and then you get a letter two months later. So um, the uh, head of the testing starts calling out some names. My best friend's name gets called. He goes up to the front of the room and says, you can go stand over there. He says, oh, no, I don't want to be a cop or a game warden. He says, well, what are you doing here? He says, my friend wants to be a game warden. He says, who's your friend? He says, Sonny Prevetto. And he says, flips through some papers and he says, Prevetto. And I raise my hand and says, come up here. And he says, well, you're not smart enough to be a game warden, but you're smart enough to be a trooper. And I said, <laughs> okay, where do I sign up? And, uh, and that's the story. And, um, you know, Vermont uh, is uh, an amazing place. It's beautiful, as you, as you know, but it also has some pretty progressive and, and um, some areas, Stowe, Vermont, Burlington, Vermont which really represented a lot of the city that I, I didn't want to get away from, you know, the arts and the theater. So I really found myself settling into um, the state and recognizing that, wow, although it's beautiful on the outside, there's a lot of poverty, 
there's a lot of addiction, there's a lot of abuse, there's a lot of violence. And, you know, and as we all get oriented, especially in the police academy, you, you begin to lose this, you know, picturesque idea of what policing is really about, mm -hmm. you know, and it doesn't take a long time for us to recognize that this job will expose us to a lot of things. So uh, I started my career. I started my career actually with the Burlington Police Department as a municipal police officer for five years, and then I switched to the state police. And in that, in that career, I did a lot of things. You know, I did everything from, um, you know, investigating homicides to accidents to the, all the whole nine yards and teaching at the police academy. And I had the fortunate experience of getting involved in peer support uh, about six or seven years into my career. And um, the reason why I did that is because I experienced my own, you know, sort of trauma, but we didn't talk about it as trauma. Right. Right. You know, um, the first death notification I gave, I was standing outside an apartment, uh, detectives were inside, you know, doing, doing their thing. And a woman walking down the street says, what are you folks doing in my dad's apartment? And here I am a brand new cop. And I had to just somehow figure out how I was going to tell this, the daughter of this man that her father had passed away, you know, and, and all the detectives said to me was put more Vicks in your nose and be quiet. Right. So oh boy. Yeah. There was not this acknowledgement of the psychological stresses that I think officers face on a regular basis. Yeah. So fast forward, um, you know, at the eight year mark in my career, I was diagnosed with an eye condition, which was going to end it. And I had some time to plan. Uh, and so um, my career ended after 10 years. And it just made sense for me because I had an interest in police wellness to, you know, go to graduate school, get a clinical degree in social work, and then really see what I could do with it. Because you got to remember, I think, you know, in the late 1990s, 2000, you know, um, 21st century policing tenants were just about coming out. I don't think they had come out yet about officer safety and wellness, right? We really need to make it a priority. So I think we're a little bit ahead of the curve. And then 9-11 happened. And I went to 9-11, as I said, on September 12th and uh, began working as a clinician uh, with the first responders on the pile for, the, for six months. And then I got hired by an organization, you may even know them, uh, PAPA, the Police Officers Providing Peer Assistance. They are a nonprofit organization that provides all of the peer support for NYPD, right? So 35,000 oh. police officers so this is a nonprofit organization based in lower Manhattan. So I began then going around to all the precincts, you know, doing suicide prevention and psychoeducation and, you know, really started my career and then doing therapy and doing groups with cops who had all been on the pile at 9-11, right? And what that really opened up for them was a, was a stigma breaking excuse to seek help. Mm -hmm. Right. So this was the 2001 was 9-11. 2003, we had an onslaught of NYPD police officers seeking mental health treatment because they waited until they looked around and they knew it. Then now this is acceptable to ask for help. Right. It took that experience. What we also learned, I think, from that experience is that the, the field of psychology is not prepared for first responder uh, trauma. <laughs> you know, it's like. None of the books really spoke about it. Um, and so it really opened my eyes to start thinking about how do we treat police officers for their trauma? And, and it's, their trauma is completely different. So um, 
make my way back to Vermont. I actually retired because I thought I had enough. I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2003, did the work I needed to do, bought a farm, came back to Vermont and became a farmer. And it's a true story. Wow. <laughs> the most stressful <laughs> job I ever had was farming. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. Yeah, I swear <laughs> to God. And all, all the people who have know what I'm talking about, you have no control over the weather or control over the animals or the equipment, you know, so so on and so forth. And then it took an incident at, a, at the Burlington Police Department, and they called me up and they said, hey, uh, we would like your help if you would help us. You know, we've had this all take place. And and that's where I came back into the, the profession with a much like invigorated energy. And I created what's called a CARES program. So a career assistance, resourcing, education and support. So it's all about career development. It's about helping people get to where they want in their career, keeping them interested in their career, providing psychological uh, education, obviously, you know, psych resources for them. Um, and it really became a, a big hit. So fast forward to 2018, um, or actually 2016, where I became frustrated as a treating provider for many of my organizations. I have 10 organizations who contract uh, with the center today. Uh, I became frustrated in not being able to get officers the help they needed when they were injured on the job from either an acute stress reaction or post-traumatic stress. You know, and that involved us changing the workers' comp law so in 2016, I testified in front of the legislature, and I, you, I, what I said to them was this. I said, listen, we know so much more about trauma today than we ever have. In 2013, when the new DSM-5 came out, it actually put police officers in the DSM. Mm -hmm. So the brand new criteria that was added was the intense or repeated exposure tra tra to traumatic material, i.e., police officers reviewing the aversive details of a child abuse case. Mm -hmm. So here you had it front and center. You didn't know you, you didn't have to get almost killed or have a serious bodily injury from an event. You now could get it from sitting in front of your computer, writing up an affidavit about a child abuse case. And that's what I said to the legislature. I said, listen, if we can be harmed just by the words on a piece of paper, right? Um, we need to be able to get police officers the help they need quickly. If we can treat them quickly, right? Identify the signs and symptoms, treat them quickly, get them back to work quickly. And I said to them, we have a modality called EMDR that can do that. There wasn't one legislature that voted against it and it became law in 2017. And, and then in 2018, people came to me and said, how are you going to treat all these people now that you changed the law? I said, I'm gonna open up a center. And so the center started with me. <laughs> and so this is in, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but yeah. just making sure, cause wow, you just, you just said a lot, amazing. Um, yeah. All of that um, led up to you opening up your center, just in, it, so it's only been open until, since 2018, is that right? It's been open since 2018. Okay. And we went from me being the sole therapist uh -huh. So I have 14 therapists that work here. Oh, amazing. Wow. I have 14 therapists, six yoga instructors, a Reiki instructor, uh, acupuncturist. Um, what's what I got going on here? Um, uh, and so uh, we have our own yoga studio. We offer free yoga classes to all first responders. You know, people just show up and, you know, you can show up wearing your gym shorts or baggy sweatpants or, you know, whatever. 
So we really wanted to break down the stigma. You know, yoga has a certain connotation and we're trying to make sure that people recognize that it's one of the best ways to balance our nervous system. Well, you are speaking my language there, obviously. <laughs> right. So, um, so, and with COVID, you know, uh, you know, there's been a lot of adjustments, obviously, at the center because things had to go virtual. But the best thing about virtual is that it opened up the center from people all over the country. Mm, amazing, right? yeah. So, so I have an organization in Pennsylvania. All I had to do was go to the Office of Professional Regulation, and it took me about three hours for me to get licensed in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. So people could seek treatment from us in Vermont. Interesting, because from, from just speaking with other clinicians, um, I didn't realize that it was... Maybe it's a streamlined process there, but how about other states? Is that is that typical? That I want to say that? it's pretty typical because okay. because of COVID. Now, uh, I can't say when they're going to lift the uh, you know take away that option, um, but the option is afforded to us uh, right now. So, so besides anybody in Vermont, uh, you can also do teletherapy with people in the state of Pennsylvania, right? Yes, and you can even do remote teletherapy with EMDR. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So let's, yeah, I just want to back up a minute because I really want to talk a lot more about EMDR. Sure. Um, I'm personally very interested in it. And I think other people, we've heard the term a lot in law enforcement um, when it comes to therapy, but nobody really understands what it is. But so just back to 2018, you started out your wellness center and it was just you. And then what, how did it grow? What made you think, okay, I'm going to add, because when I, when I checked out your, your website, not only do you offer yoga, you offer mindfulness, biofeedback, you have somebody who's a heart math instructor yep. or trained. Um, so you have a lot going on peer support. So can you, can you kind of tell us sure. how all that happened? Sure. So, uh, well, first of all, you know, being a clinician and advocating for my police officers, especially when they have a diagnosis of PTSD, because there's no x-ray or there's no MRI that we can say and prove, you know, it becomes this subjective, uh, you know, kind of debate. Um, and it's not the organizations that don't want to support their officers. It's the insurance company. You know, it's basically the insurance company counting dollars. So one of the things that I recognize that we could do is um, biofeedback is a biological marker of the balance of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. If we know that trauma is a stress-related disorder, right? For, for those who you know, are suffering from post-traumatic stress, the, the ability to use a computer program that just, just basically describes the functioning of the person's nervous system and takes out my opinion, takes out the subjective nature of the person who's been affected. Now we have an objective piece of information that we can show either supports the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress or does not. Hmm. Right. So how, so, does, how does it work? You get someone, sure. can you, can you kind of walk me through what that sure. looks like? So, um, you know, so it measures heart rate variability. And by the way, yoga is one of the best practices that improves heart rate variability, right? So now yes. we've brought in this modality of yoga, right? So we're measuring heart rate variability. If you have poor heart rate variability, you have a nervous system that will react to something and not recover quickly. That's the worst scenario for a police officer, mm -hmm. right? So yes. we're able to, uh, you know, we put a, um, a sensor on your earlobe, mm -hmm. plug you up to this computer. It, it's an EKG, so it measures your heart rate, 
right? And it also measures the coherence or the balance between your respiratory system and your circulatory system. So the two autonomic systems that are governed by the emotional brain, right? So the survival brain controls those two systems. There's no faking this. You know, seriously, if, if you say you have PTSD and I hook you up to the, to the biofeedback program and it says that you have a pretty solid nervous system and you have a flexible state of mind, then there's going to be other questions that I'm going to have to ask. What we also do is we ask officers to get a salivary uh, cortisol test from their primary care physician. Why do we do that? Contrary to belief, we would believe that cortisol would be very high in people who have post-traumatic stress. On the contrary, it's extremely low. Really? And it's extremely low because the mechanisms that produce cortisol get, get worn out because the system's always producing cortisol when it doesn't need it. Right? So the center really became this organization around, you know, treating first responders the best way possible, but also, you know, promoting their wellness and getting the compensation that they needed so they can get back to work. And I'll be honest with you, there has not been one officer since 2018 who has not gone back to work. Wow, that's amazing. So, so let me ask you this, when you put somebody on this biofeedback machine to measure their heart rate variability, do you put them through like certain scenarios or do you make them think about certain things or this is just them sitting and getting so, monitored? So, so I manage 10 wellness programs in different organizations. Think mm -hmm. of having a baseline biofeedback reading for every officer pre-critical incident, right? Before they get involved in a critical incident. Then they're involved in a critical incident and the chief wants to know, hey, can I, can my people go back to work, right? Uh, yeah, so we have a pre-test, right? And now I can measure their current state towards that pre-incident reading to see how far off they are or they're just about the same, right? So we have a clear way of telling whether or not our offices can go back to work and handle stress, right? Gotcha, okay. So, so you, the, you, you, you contract with these agencies, they put everyone through just a baseline test and then, right. is that right? That's right. What, if, what if someone didn't get that baseline test and they wanted to come to you and they wanted to kind of see where they were at Would that still? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So we, we offer a, a six month wellness checkup cost. No, doesn't cost anybody anything. You come in, we run you through biofeedback. We get a reading what that is. We take an assessment of how you did the last six months. What'd you do good? What, what do you need to change? You know, how's your drinking? How's your relationship? You know, how's job satisfaction? You know, you look at all of these factors and, you know, we, we guide these officers through their career so they stay interested uh, in what's going on. You know, and some of the times when officers are struggling, I ask them to get interested in peer support because the idea of being a peer mentor is about practicing your own self-care. You know, to, to answer your original question, do you put the officers through a scenario we don't because the their heart math makes a uh, a one minute HRV test. So for one minute, we ask you to do a six second breath in and a six second breath out, and think of think of you know driving your cruiser down the interstate at you know 85 miles an hour because that's usually trooper speed, and then slamming on the brakes. That's what we're asking the vagal nerve to do when we give you that HRV one minute test. So it allows us to see 
how much you can regulate your nervous system uh, when you need to. And when people can't, that's poor HRV. Gotcha. And so, you know, we don't want those folks on the road. Right, think about that. Until that HRV gets to a place where we know that they can handle a stressful situation, you know, we want them really to be engaged. And it might be only yoga. It may be only mindfulness. So, yeah, so it's a great tool that, that we use here for sure. So if, if you don't mind, just for anybody who might be listening who still isn't exactly sure what heart rate variability means, can you just quickly explain what that means, what, what sure. you're measuring? Sure. So, um when we hook you up to the program, what we're really measuring is the beats of your heart in between each pulse. And so most people won't realize that their heart beats between each pulse, right? So good heart rate variability would be the ability to go from 67 beats in a minute up to 115 beats in a minute, right? And back down to 68 beats in a minute. That's good heart rate variability. Poor heart rate variability would be to go from 70 beats a minute to 125 beats a minute to 96 beats a minute to 115 beats a minute to 57 beats a minute all over the place. Gotcha. That's a nervous system that can't regulate itself, right? And because most of what we deal with can be stressful, right? I mean, the stress response happens in offices three, four times a day, right? good heart rate variability, which really can be managed through the practice of yoga, right, is essential for us staying healthy. I mean, it's really a marker of overall health. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, and and I know you know this because you keep referring to it, um, but, you know, I, I was trained through yoga for first responders as well. I'm a certified yoga teacher. And one of the big things probably the number one thing that we preach when we teach classes, and I do this in any class I teach, not even just to first responders, is how breathing is a direct link to your nervous system. That's how you access it. And it's the number one self-regulation tool. And and so that is probably something that is probably the easiest thing to, to tell people too, because you can teach people how to breathe in a certain way when they're sitting in a classroom. So, right. so uh, it's funny you say that because the first time I had an officer work with one of my yoga teachers, she walked out of the studio and she says, he doesn't know how to breathe. (laughs) And I chuckled a little bit, right? You know, and the other thing that I think really speaks to what you're talking about is, you know, we wear 25 pounds now Mm -hmm. over our shoulders, you know, and I can remember the days of pulling the vest down and if you had the trauma plate in there, you know, like, so, you know, we are, we sit in these, these cruises, we sit in these police cars, you know, we do everything in front of us. Uh, we lift weights. So we'll more have a more tendency to, to kind of close off our diaphragm, keep it, you know, and we wrestle with people and that's all this, you know, our, your arms coming in and tightening up your chest. The only way you can breathe is if you, you know, you open up your shoulders, you, and that's really important, I think, for people to recognize, you know, as a weightlifter my whole life, you know, I would take a lot of short breaths to gain the power to push the weights. That's not what we want officers to do. We want officers to take long, deep breaths, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, you know, it's interesting that culture kind of taught us one thing. And what we're saying about staying healthy, we're kind of saying, hey, it's really the other thing. Exactly. And I mean, I this, I do this probably several times a week where I talk about that exact thing because, 
you see, you can actually see as you're walking people through this, the change, because most of us sit hunched over, even if we don't realize it, which that in and of itself, vest or not, will activate the stress response by closing off all these main systems like respiration and heart. And even it's funny to just watch people as they realize it when you walk them through it just by sitting up tall and releasing their shoulders back and away from their ears, like that in and of itself can make a big difference. And just imparting that wisdom like, hey, when you're sitting in your patrol car, you'll have this vest on try this. And (laughs) so, so anyhow, we're, you and I are speaking the same language. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you, uh, you guys also are, are, are teaching that as well. Right. Well, and, and the other thing on the, in the heart math program is the program is really designed around people to pay attention to their breathing. Right. So it measures, and you, we're talking about it. See, it measures the change in the balance Mm -hmm. of the rhythm in the heart and in the lungs. So when you take over that autonomic system, the heart has to sync itself to the rhythm of your breath. And that's how we change blood pressure, heart rate. So think about that. It's really the science of, of the heart, right? The heart and, and our lungs are connected. And we can't get in there and change the beat of the heart, but we can control our breath, which changes the beat of the heart. And so that's why, you know, one of the best things that officers can do, peer support officers can do, is always bring people back to their breath. Just, I just need you to breathe. Just, just focus on your breath. Just take some deep, a very simple technique, by the way, is one of the key techniques in EMDR's early intervention techniques, which we're using to teach peer support members how to stabilize and ground officers after a critical incident. Yeah, and I'm very interested in hearing about that, but I have one other quick question before we get into that, Um, because it's something that seems like it could be so effective. So if you have, for instance, like in Kansas, if I wanted to to have someone trained or find someone who's trained in biofeedback and heart math to do exactly what you're talking about, is that something that insurance pays for? Or is this something that the agency, you contract with the agencies that they pay for? So how, how does that work? Well, what I, would, what I would say is I would get your department to pay for two or three people, depending on how big your department is. It's about a $1,500 course, and you'll get certified as a heart math coach. You'll get the program, so you can download it on your computers, and you have people who will be trained to administer it. Uh, you can use it as a pre-screening tool like, like we do, right? So you can mm-hmm. run your people through it. The only thing I would ask you to, that's going to be a question is, you know, because if you're not a licensed clinician, mm-hmm. where's the confidentiality? So, right. you know, there are also a little bit of uh, some, some roadblocks when peer support teams themselves like to um, want to use it. However, uh, I know in the state of New Hampshire, not Vermont yet, because I have a legislator who keeps dropping the ball, but in, in New Hampshire, they have passed a, a law that says peer-to-peer information is confidential. We have the same thing, actually. That's awesome. In Kansas, we have, a, we have a state statute that protects, and there's exceptions, obviously, if somebody's right. suicidal or homicidal. But right. yeah, we have the same protection here. So. so then you guys could utilize heart math in your wellness program. Interesting. Okay. That's, yeah. that's really good information. Thank you. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about EMDR now, um, for those who, who don't know about it and, um, and how you are starting to train peers. 
Sure. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, like I said, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2003. Yeah. I went through seven and a half years of psychoanalysis, right? And I was convinced that I was good. And I believed I was good, right? And I went off on my way, right? Did my work. Um, interesting story. Uh, the, the way I knew that I was struggling was I was doing a group with a bunch of NYPD officers in a in an office somewhere down on Broadway in Manhattan. And, um, you know, some people were really struggling. I mean, as you can imagine, right? Lost friends, uh, some people lost family members, uh, worked in the towers. There was this one guy, he was just not present. You know, I think he was only, I don't know why he would come, to be honest with you. So I asked him to step out of the group and I went into the hallway and I just began to choke him. And this is a true story. and and. I re recognized what I was doing. I, I said, get out of here and don't come back. And then the next day I went to my boss and I said, I, I think I need to take a break. And he says, why? And I said, because I choked this guy out of a group. And he said, oh, he deserved it. I said, and I said, gee, no, you don't recognize. I mean, I'm suffering myself. Mm -hmm. This is such a true story for everybody. You know, we don't, we don't pay attention to the signs and the symptoms, right? We don't pay attention to our drinking. Um, and then I went to therapy. And then I got convinced that I was okay. And so this is this is when you were, if I'm if I'm following you right, when you made that realization, you yourself were a trained therapist. You were a clinician uh, at that time. Yes. Yes. Okay. All yeah. Right. I just want to make I, sure I was tracking. You can't see it, right? Um, uh, and then I knew when I when I went to choke this guy that that was a visceral reaction to what was going on inside of me. And I went and got the help. Uh, and the talk therapy was helpful. Kept me grounded, kept me working on things. Seven years took a long time. But at, if you're a therapist, you need to be in therapy, right? This is one thing I learned. I've heard and, that before. <laughs> yeah. And then, and so in 2011, when I started back up in Vermont and I was doing all of this stuff, I always wanted to get trained in EMDR. I had read Francine Shapiro's book, I would say probably in the mid nineties, was fascinated by it. And then I went to get trained in it. And, you know, like us as police officers, you know, we wonder if people can hold on to what I may tell them, what my trauma may be, what I've seen, what I've done in my career. And I met my mentor who was actually doing the training. His name is Mark Nickerson. Um, and, and I knew the minute I met Mark that this guy is going to be my therapist. Uh, and right, So I went through the training and in the training of getting trained in the procedures of administering EMDR, I went deep into my own trauma and stuff came out for me in, in a conference room in a motel, uh, in a hotel with two other therapists who I'm working with about me almost being killed on the job. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm good with this. Why is, why is this coming up? Like, why am I getting emotional? Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because one of the things that EMDR teaches us and trains us to look for is that, you know, we are resilient as individuals. Every one of your officers that you know goes out there and, and deals with whatever we deal with on a daily basis, you know, comes to work the next day, sits in roll call, gets his duty bag, gets out there on the road. The human mind is really resilient. So what it does for traumatic events that we can't understand, and by the way, we don't know which ones are understandable and which ones are totally fully integrated. What the mind does is it sticks these 
memories in an amnestic memory network. So it sticks it in a network that's filled with amnesia. Pretty smart, right? Mm, Shove yeah. that in there. It doesn't make me, you know, I, I can forget some of the aspects of the event. I have a very poor memory around 9-11. Why? It was my brain's way of keeping me uh, capable of not being overwhelmed every day. Well, and it was protecting you is, that's right. is what it exactly. sounds like. Yeah. Right. You know, you look at your 20 and 30 year veterans, right? You know, there's that, that brain is protecting them. Well, at the same time, you know, the brain doesn't, that amnestic memory network doesn't do anything about our behaviors or our thinking. Mm. Right? Yeah. What EMDR does, if you think about this, EMDR is the, the key point of EMDR is the eye movements. Why do we incorporate eye movements, right? We incorporate eye movements because in rapid eye movement sleep is when the human mind consolidates memory. Every night when we go into REM sleep, we update our memory banks of what we experience during that day. So we know that eye movements are critical to formation of adaptive memories. So if we believe, and EMDR teaches us, that um, we all possess the ability to heal, right? Our minds do possess the ability to heal, just like our skin possesses the ability to, to scab over and, and heal a cut. So EMDR, using eye movements, so we create the bilateral stimulation, right, which is really neurofeedback. It's the stimulation of the vagal nerve which allows people to tolerate a traumatic memory better. Mm -hmm. If you can keep people in a window of tolerance where they can go back into a traumatic memory and not be overwhelmed again, we ask them to utilize the dual attention, the attention of being in the room with the EMDR therapist, which is the present, and going back into the past into the memory and noticing the information that you may not have noticed before. I'll tell you my own personal experience. So I had a really big bad guy try to kill me one night. It was New Year's Eve. And I relied on all of my training and it was so seamless. Everything I was taught to do, I was doing. And I was really recognizing it wasn't working. You know, pepper spray, baton, this guy was still coming after me and then I'm on my trigger. And then finally I recognized that he can't see me because I really pepper sprayed him a lot. And he was trying to look for me and then I, didn't want to shoot him and kill him. So, you know, I went hands on with him and I got him on the ground and I got him handcuffed with two handcuffs. I had to scream to the other trooper to send me his handcuffs. Give me your handcuffs because I'm looking for the other boots to be on the pile to help me handcuff this guy. And he didn't. So I double handcuffed this guy and then I ran in the house and I dialed the local PD to come out and help me. And people always ask me, why'd you dial local PD? Why don't you just call for backup? I never had an answer for them. When I was, when I was gonna retire, I was offered by the Colonel a position in headquarters that I could ride out another 10 years and get a full retirement. And I said, no, I want out. It wasn't until EMDR that I recognized how that trooper betrayed me didn't help me, mm -hmm. how I didn't trust the department, how I wanted out, I didn't need to get out, <laughs> right? EMDR allowed me to work through so many side stories of that traumatic, it wasn't about me fighting this guy. It was about all of these other things about, I don't feel safe in my life. EMDR brought that up, I can't tell you how many years later, you know, like 17 years later, I went back into that memory and got rid of it. 
totally integrated it. That is fascinating because to hear you in the beginning, I thought, well, he was, he, he had no choice. He had to retire medically. No. That obviously isn't the case. No. And it's, I gosh, ran, that... I ran. Uh-huh. And you know, this is interesting. All of, you know, what, what's in that amnestic memory network are a couple of things that are in all of us, right? So our addictive behaviors are subconscious. Mm-hmm. Our race, relational patterns are subconscious. How I relate to you, how I relate to my organization, how I relate to my kids. Um, and you have to remember that I was making decisions because I was traumatized and was not even aware of it. And, and this comes at a time when, you know, this was 1996. This comes at a time when nobody asked me if I needed to see somebody. Right. I was stuck with, so for six months, I put scotch tape on my windows, right? When I went to work and in Vermont, you take your cruiser home, your cruiser sits in your driveway. So everybody in town knows where the trooper lives. So I'd get home, get off duty at 2.30 in the morning and I would sneak through the woods and I'd go around my house and make sure nobody broke in and then I'd go back and get my cruiser and then I'd drive down my driveway. Wow. That's not healthy. Yeah, I would say not. So can let me just make sure I'm, I'm tracking. So 17 years after you left is when this realization occurred during your EMDR training, right? Training. Yeah. It wasn't even okay. going for therapy. Okay. So, so how did that like change things for you? Because that's a pretty big revelation to, to right. not know consciously and then to realize that. So I want you to think of trauma as a, as a, tra- a form of stress, traumatic stress is a form of stress that lives based on unconsolidated, unprocessed memories. Mm-hmm. So your body's always dealing with that stress, even though you know you're sitting at you know a baseball game with your with your kid, right, playing little league. Your body's still dealing with that traumatic stress. And I always say, especially when you have two people in a relationship and they're both first responders, like you interact with each other through this lens of trauma, whether you know it or not, mm-hmm. right? Because think all of our unprocessed trauma is still causing stress in our lives. How well we cope with that stress is another, is another, is another story. So 17 years later, I had this revelation of why I made decisions in my life. It helps me make decisions today, by the way. Mm-hmm. Right. I've... Remember you don't make any big decisions when you're under stress. So you can, you can look at it this way. One is, I got rid of a lot of unprocessed traumatic events in my life that were causing a certain amount of traumatic stress, which I no longer deal with. Talk about overall health, right? I don't want that stress, mm-hmm. right? My blood pressure, I, I'm 62. I don't take one medication at all. That's amazing. Right? I, and I'm, I'm nothing special, but you know, one of the things I recognize that mental health is the key to my physical health. And so I say to people all the time, I say to retirees, four years prior to retiring, come in, let's talk about, I have a book on my desk, you probably can't see it. It's a binder. And this officer put together all of the news articles, all of the photographs, all of the, anything that he was involved with, it's this thick. Oh, wow. Right? And so let's make sure that we get rid of all this stuff before you slide into retirement because in retirement you don't have the routine you don't have the relationships 
right? And you may find yourself with idle time. And when you have idle time, that mi that mind's going to knock on your door and say, hey, remember me? Mm -hmm. And that's when you don't want to deal with it. I'm really glad you said that because that's something um, that's, you know, especially since I retired myself and a lot of the people that I worked with over the years are either retired now or getting ready to. Right. And uh, there's a lot of a lot of people that are in different places when it comes to what you just said. And one thing, too, is that some people retire and they go from, you know, one extreme to the complete other. Others have other jobs, other have, others plan travel and have things that they plan to do. So what I, I'm assuming when you talk to these officers that are getting ready to retire, you talk about that, like having a plan, not only processing what you've dealt with over the years, but you know, what's, what's next. Exactly right. And one thing I find very common is, Police officers don't know how to parlay their experiences into the yeah. private sector. And, you know, and I, I could, you know, you can go through everything they're good at, right? They're good at a lot of things. They're good at writing. Uh, they're good at assessment. Um, they have people skills. And so, you know, you can help somebody really kind of find a pathway that, you know, allows them. First of all, many people stay too long mm -hmm. because they don't have an idea of what they're going to do and that's detrimental as well yeah i i see that a lot because you know we get so focused on you know we have to stay x amount of years to get this and to get that and it's just we don't look at all of the other opportunities that we could have because we get so so focused laser focused on that plus you're exactly right i've had so many people say to me well i don't know what else i would do Right. And then my response is similar to what, what you just said is, well, there's, you could do a lot more than you think. Right. Right. You know, and, and fortunate for you know, the profession, there's the federal system or even the state system that, you know, officers can leave us being a sworn police officer and go into and being investigated with DMV or, uh, you know, officer professional regulation and investigate other people's licenses. Right. So they really do have a lot of skills. And I think at the state level, you can see that people can really fit into a lot of jobs. I mean, some some officers are retiring and going into the schools. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so we do have a lot of, and then you have those officers say, I don't want anything mm -hmm. to do with mm -hmm. enforcing anything, you know, and, and for some of them, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's maybe a little bit more of a challenge, but, um, but, you know, it's really critical that we pay attention to retirement for, for our folks. So at your facility at the Vermont Center for Responder Wellness, is that something that you offer? And you talked a little bit about that, but do you have somebody or is it you that, that talks to retirees or people getting ready to retire yeah. about that? So um, what the center also offers is professional peer support. Not that what you have in your organization is not professional, but we have um, people who work at the center who are our peer specialists. So these are uh, usually retired uh, uh, men and women who go to our contracts and our organizations have coffee with a cop every day, just checking in or shows up, you know, if there's a critical incident. Um, you know, these are, these are folks who have navigated their careers very well, and they offer great insight into opportunities for retirement or what to do planning for retirement. So it's not only myself, but it's also uh, two of the other people who work here, uh, who, you know, one person has 35 years of law enforcement experience, the other one's getting, uh, has 25, um, you know, really help people navigate how to get into retirement and, you know, more importantly, be healthy. You know, as all the work that John Violante has done around, you know, mortality rates, 
um, you know, we're trying to push those rates a little bit higher than 10 to 12 years. You know, we'd love for them to be 30 years, right? Because when you're getting out at 50, we should be living to be 90. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I think the first time I started looking into to what you're talking about, the research said five years after retirement, which we now know isn't true, but it's still not that much better. Right. And that just goes to show you, and I think a lot of Violante's work is around the the long lasting effects of having a stress response. Mm-hmm. So the stress response, right, the increased heart rate, cortisol, blood pressure, you know, turning on the blue lights, going code to something and, you know, and then dealing with that and then waiting for your body to come back to some balance or some homeostasis, you know, that turning on and turning off of that system, they call it the allostatic load, the turning on and off of that system is detrimental to us if we're not taking steps to make sure it's not as detrimental. And, you know, and I'm looking at you and I'm smiling because, you know, one of the key factors of managing this stress is, is practices of yoga. And by the way, when I talk about yoga and I have a very limited knowledge, I know that yoga, the practice of yoga incorporates all of these different things, breathing, concentration, movement, all of them are helpful for our officers who sit in a cruiser sedentary until they have to open the door and make a mad dash. And that's why it's so interesting that, you know, I don't know if you experience, but but when we talk about yoga here in Vermont, you know, some people give the eyebrow roll and, you know, they, they get you get faces about it. But the reality is, is that we're making people believers that really this is a great modality and they can do it online you can do it in the privacy of your living room you can go to a yoga studio right oh it's, absolutely right. and and i think i think you you talked about it earlier when it came to the stigma and the preconceived notions of what people think of when they when you say the word yoga when i first started introducing yoga in 2016 uh you know it took a minute even though i work at the agency and people know me which could be very different than an outsider coming in, it still took a while to catch on, but there were a lot of people that believed in it, just like you're talking about. And so now, you know, we're at the point where we're incorporating yoga for first responders into the recruit training. I offer weekly classes and we get about an average of 10 people. Awesome. And, and, and as we speak, kind of, this is kind of timely in a week from now, we're going to be doing a train the trainer so that we can um, get more trainers on board. And besides me right now in town, there's only one other person and she's retired captain and she still helps out. Um, but what I think is going to be really neat is we're going to have several male instructors right. that work on the agency. And I think that's, I think not to say that people don't want to learn from me, but you know what I'm saying? It's different. Most people in law enforcement are men. And so by having these really, these guys who are defense tactics instructors, who people are familiar with, if they're saying yoga is helpful then and that's just going to help spread it yeah you know um one of the people that i use is the former labor attorney who negotiated all the police and fire contracts right so all the cops know him and he retired at 65 he's 72 he went on to become a yoga teacher he work awesome he works with all of my my people and they all know each other because half of these people were on the union right like oh Mm -hmm. yeah you know so yeah it's very important to blend that familiarity with people you know 
and using that to further the idea that, hey, this is acceptable, this is really helpful, making that the norm, you know, and that also goes to be breaking down that stigma. Yeah, definitely. And it's like no like trust factor. They know who you are, they like you, and then they trust you because of, of your, you know, of who you are, what you've done. And so I, it's key, just like anything else with cops, you know, the person that's delivering the class or they're hearing from, they, they have to have some sort of cred, really, basically, yep. with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So when it comes to, I want to have, I have, I wrote it down one quick question about EMDR and then we can move on to something else. You talked about the back and forth eye movement, which is the same as what happens in REM sleep. If I was following you right, the bilateral eye movement is, is what's, what's happening when we're sleeping. What if someone is going to go and get EMDR, but they have horrible sleep? I mean, I know we're talking about two different things, but in, is getting better sleep going to help make the EMDR more successful or does it matter? Um, I think it works two ways. One is okay. obviously we know how critical sleep is. Mm -hmm. So for all of our officers who don't sleep well, I want you to remember that that really is the hyper arousal of your nervous system that keeps you up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Second of all, EMDR not only works in REM sleep, but EMDR works in the middle of EMDR, mm -hmm. right? So when we're administering the eye movements, and uh, I have a, a, t a device that, does, it's a light bar, basically runs back and forth and officers can use that, or we put these tappers in their hands and these things pulse, alternating pulsing. The idea of using the bilateral stimulation, think about this, the bilateral stimulation in REM sleep the eye movements stimulate the emotional brain and our rational brain, and it signals it to update the information of our day. In EMDR, the EMDR therapist uh, works with you to find a target memory, a portion of your memory that may be disturbing. It also helps you identify an irrational belief that you have about yourself. I'm not good enough, right? I didn't drive fast enough. So when we're doing the EMDR in the session, the officer's eyes are usually closed because they're holding on to things that buzz in their hands. <clears throat> Excuse me. Their, their officer's eyes are usually closed. They're 99% of the time silent. They're not telling the therapist what they're noticing. So for some people who... And you know that most people who suffer from post-traumatic stress are alexithymic. And alexithymia means I can't put words to my feelings. So if you're doing talk therapy and you suffer from PTSD, how can you express or even understand yourself how I feel? EMDR doesn't require words. It requires a person to come up with an image that represents the worst part of that experience. And you know, for officers, you and I know that sometimes it's not what most people think it is. It's the kid standing down the hallway who's staring at me and he's four years old and wants to wonder why daddy's not getting up. Mm -hmm. That's what we get affected by. EMDR, when it increases the neural communication between the survival brain and the rational brain, the rational brain, which is technically deactivated in a stressful call, right? It allows that rational brain to accept that information. 
And that information that's now coming in, and the, and the reason why you're silent is because we only ask you to notice that kid down the hall and then allow your own internal association to that experience to resonate with you. You know, the minute any of us think of a word or like that image I just gave you, so you went to a kid standing down the end of a hallway, that's a bunch of information. So trauma is really about the mind's ability to reprocess the information that was present at a traumatic call. And when we think about what's bothering us, we are only using 10% of our mind's ability, which is conscious, to identify what's bothering us. Hmm. And that's why talk therapy takes a really long time. EMDR allows this bilateral stimulation to stimulate the vagal nerve, allow us to have a greater window of tolerance to go back into something that's distressing. And when we are, have a greater window of tolerance, our rational brain wants to stay with us, right? So in the general public, and this is a, there's a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, and you know, Van der Kolk talks about the deactivation of the rational brain because the survival brain is designed to keep us alive. We, as responders, utilize our rational thinking because it's implicit memory, which is developed from our training. However, it doesn't change the fact that we're still exposed to a distressing or traumatic call. EMDR increases that neurocommunication, allows that information to be part of the experience. And so when we're experiencing a traumatic call, you know, memory is fragmented and sometimes disorganized because the rational brain is not necessarily fully present. This is why the IACP gives us three sleep cycles. You know, when an officer is involved in mm -hmm. a critical incident, right? Before that officer gives a, uh, you know, a formal statement, we want them to experience three full sleep cycles. Why? We want them to get through REM sleep. We want them to consolidate the experience into the best memory they can, right? And so the IACP is still going now on the same, you know, theoretical foundation that EMDR works on. EMDR work believes that, you know, we need to have consolidated memories. However, memories can be affected in a traumatic call. EMDR allows us to go back into the memory, increases the window of tolerance, and the officers make their own internal associations to their experience. They don't rely on the therapist to make the connection for them. And this is why it's so powerful and so effective and it works so quickly. So your, your question was REM sleep. What happens if officers don't get good sleep? Two things happen. One, they can still do the work in the office with the therapist because the bilateral stimulation is tricking the brain that it's in REM sleep. And two, a large majority of the time, my clients tell me they've never slept that good in a really long time. And, and why is that? Yeah, that's what kind of where I was, what I was wondering about. Like if, if you do this and it's successful, does that help you sleep better? Like, do they kind of go oh, hand in hand? Absolutely. So, you know, again, I talked in the beginning of the hyperarousal keeps us up. When we keep our mind, so think about this. We are targeting a specific memory or memories, and we are asking you to notice those older memories. Those memories are now back in short-term memory. Like they almost have a special, like, you know, a tag on them to say, hey, these, these have been here before. We need to take a look at these again. 
So it's almost like they have a, a special uh, level of importance and people are locked down in REM sleep longer because we've kind of given it the same scenario. We have done the bilateral stimulation of that memory. And so when you're in REM sleep, it almost like it sticks even more. And what I will tell you is that none of my clients can tell me why they feel better the next day or two or three days later. But what they always say to me, which is very consistent, and I've done over 15,000 EMDR sessions, what they always say to me is, I just feel lighter on my feet. And so what I'll say to them, I want you to go back to that original memory. When you think of it now, how distressing is it? And they go back and they say, hmm, it's like a two. Doesn't, doesn't really bother me, right? You know, and for first responders, we won't get to a zero, right? Because we're too efficient. We know that I'm going to go see this or go see that. So, so you know, my experience as an EMDR therapist with first responder is that a two is like a zero for the general public. Yeah, it's really fascinating, it, and I've seen it work so many times. So if I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but for someone who's listening, the bottom line is if there's something that you're dealing with, whatever that is for you, if you get EMDR, it sounds like what you're saying is you're integrating it, and then you're able to think of the same exact incident in a completely different way and have a completely different response. Completely different. And we get rid of the negative belief, right? So most mm -hmm. responders feel like they're not good enough because, you know, we, we get the call, you know, we're, we're running there as fast as we can. We always want to get a better outcome of what's happening. And sometimes that's not possible, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the irrational belief is that, you know, I didn't do CPR enough. I didn't drive fast enough. You know, I should have done something different. That's the irrational thinking. EMDR allows them to see the call. I usually say to, to officers, I want you to go back into that call, but this time I want you to watch that from a thousand feet above and watch everything you're doing. And so they're bringing in the information, like they're seeing everything. I had, I had an officer tell me the other day that, and it's okay to talk about calls, right? Because I'm, I'm assuming that the audience is... Oh, absolutely. So... You know, as a trooper, we see some really crazy things with cars. This guy had gone through the windshield but got stuck halfway through. And he was so drunk that he was actually cutting his abdomen on the windshield as we got there. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, and we can see what he's doing. And he has no idea of it. It's so bizarre that this guy doesn't realize that he's literally cutting himself in half. And so the EMT saying to me, and I, I, I tried to slide the backboard down behind him, you know, he's still inside the car, like his, his thighs are up against the steering wheel. And that was, I mean, as I say to you, it disturbs me, right? So for this EMT, he feel like he didn't do the right thing. But when I asked him to look at that whole call that he was on from a thousand feet above and notice everything you're doing, he said, oh my God, I got it. I said, well, what do you got? He says, there's nothing else I could have done. Right, because now he sees himself operating and that in new information of seeing himself operate creates the meaning that he needs to make himself feel confident and good enough to continue to be an EMT. And it, it sounds a little bit like it's incorporating mindfulness because you're trying to get people to look at a situation more of like from a witness perspective or an observer just kind of stepping back and, and maybe getting a little bit of a bird's eye view. Exactly. You know, and that's what I said to him. I want you to be a patient observer in your own experience. I don't want you to be in the experience, right? Because when we're in the experience, we miss those bits of information that help us integrate into who we are. And so, you know, stepping back and taking a look at it and noticing. And, that, and by the way, in, in EMDR, there's two things that we always say, 
right? Because you're silent, right? Every 20 seconds, I shut the machine off and I say, you know, I say in the beginning, I want a brief description of the last thing you're thinking of. So people will say, you know, I pulled up and I see this guy in the windshield. I'll say, all right, go with that. He goes back into the memory and he's incorporating the information. And we just say, notice that, notice that, and notice that. We want them, remember, we believe that trauma is all about the mind's ability to process the information and give meaning to our experiences, right? And that's as simple as it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before, um, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you a couple things um, specifically about if someone is thinking about EMDR, they're listening to you and they're like, you know what, this could really help me. I've never heard of this before. Okay, I'm going to give this a try. Is there um, a certain number of sessions that like on average, like how many sessions does it take to quote unquote work? And then second, is there like, is there a percentage of success? Like you have a number 75% of the time it works, 95% of the time it works or, 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 can you speak to that? I can tell you this, out of the 15,000, over 15,000 sessions I've done, there's only four people, four people who wow. did not receive relief. And they didn't receive relief because they were so blocked. Like there was, and I knew that. And you know, and, and sometimes there's a time to do this work and there's a time that they can't do this work. Um, if people want to find an EMDR therapist, you go to EMDRIA, so E-M-D-R-I-A, the International Association, mdria.org and click on find a therapist you put in your zip code and and interview each therapist people can get trained in emdr and only do it once a year (laughs) right so a certified emdr therapist is somebody who has a minimum amount of hours so you want to look for a certified emdr therapist right that's one way you can do it um and then the other thing is to word of mouth like you start asking, you know, who's a good EMDR therapist. Maybe you ask your primary care physician and stuff like that. If I have a minute, I want to talk about early interventions. Yes, please right? do. So think about this, right? Mm-hmm. So peer teams are out there, and I'm not here to, to say anything bad about any other intervention that's being used, but um, I've done hundreds of the Mitchell model, the CISD, um, and I choose not to do them anymore because I don't find them to be effective. Um, EMDR, back in 1989, created... Uh, what's called early interventions. And what they really are, they're aspects of the EMDR therapy that we training peers to utilize. And as a yoga instructor and a a mindfulness coach yourself, right? These are the skills of breath work, grounding exercises, um, stabilization exercises, all of the things that we know can allow people to feel a little bit more present in the moment and not be stuck out on the highway at a fatal accident. And so EMDR utilizes the tenets of its grounding and stabilization techniques, and we're teaching peer support teams to to use these same techniques. So they actually have a skill, a book, we're creating a flip chart where you you say, okay, I have the four elements exercise, or I have the three minute, you know, concentration exercise. And so we're giving peers these tools because, you know, with the other model, there's a diffusing, which means you go, you do active listening, you know, you offer support, but now we're actually going and we're actually utilizing a technique. They're called low intensity interventions. And through Francine Shapiro, who created EMDR knew that in other parts of the world that it would be easy and ethical to train non-licensed professionals to offer 
these stabilization and grounding techniques after a natural disaster or in a war-torn country. In 2017, I had the idea of grabbing those intervention skills and why wouldn't we train our peer support officers in these really highly effective and most important, safe, oh my God, you know, what are we doing? We're trying to de dis you know, we're trying to de-escalate the nervous system, right? After a traumatic call and we're right. using breath work and we're using other grounding and stabilization techniques. So if you have an incident that occurs, because, you know, this happens all the time with our peer support team, we do, I mean, we do still do debriefings and we do some diffusings. And if there's an incident, some of us may come in very shortly after and kind of check in on some people. So what you're saying is instead of just doing the normal, hey, give them a little bit of psychoeducation, check in, you would actually in a group setting or one-on-one -on -one, do these low intensity interventions. Okay. Both. So in a diffusing model, it's one-on-one, -on -one, right? Okay. Um, and I would, I would say, Hey, um, just let's sit for like five minutes and just do a little bit of breathing. Right. And just, just, and I would guide that person through a three minute breathing exercise or a grounding technique, right. Or, or progressive muscle relaxation technique. So I've created a manual, um, based on, so Francine Shapiro died two years ago. And oh. in, in her last days of being with us, she had asked very prominent people in the world of EMDR to make sure that you push forward this paraprofessional, right? That's what we call them. And in the summer of 2019, I was invited to go to Geneva and I was trained, I'm trained as one of 12 people in the world to push forward Francine Shapiro's desire to train paraprofessional. The only reason why, I'm the only one for in the United States because we have plenty of resources. But the reason why I was asked is because the, the people in EMDR know that I treat first responders. And I had always said to them, we need to start treating our peer teams in these skills. And so I got invited, I got trained as a trainer. This is the stuff that Stephanie and I are talking about. You know, hopefully one day I'll go to Portland and I can train those folks in EMDR EI skills. It's so exciting. And you know, it also has a group protocol. And I have modified the group protocol. It's been, it's been researched for about 11 years now. I've modified the group protocol just for first responders because first responders are more left brain oriented. Mm -hmm. So really exciting things on, on that part. And, I, and we can talk about it at another time if you'd like, and I can send you information. But um, I have five peer teams in Vermont that are using the early intervention skills. And I have a team in Pennsylvania that's also using those skills um, and looking to train all of Connecticut EMS in the same skills. And right now, because COVID has opened things up, we're having these uh, negotiations. So it's a really exciting time for peer support. You know, and as a former peer support person myself, I always felt like I didn't have enough skills, no matter what training I went to, to help my colleague in those moments. Now we have a set that you can choose from. And I say to my peer supporters, choose one or two of them and just get really good at it. That's all you need. You only need one or two of these skills that you can memorize. You don't have to have the flip chart with you. You can come and you can do that with your, and they'll really seek a lot of, of, um, of relief. One more thing about EMDR, right? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. There's eye movement desensitization. Think about that, right? So a licensed therapist comes the moments after a critical incident, I can desensitize what that person is feeling about that incident way before they even get their first sleep cycle. Mm. 
Think about that. What a tool that is, right? To be, and you think about it, why is that important? Because if we don't desensitize older traumatic events, we are more likely to be sensitive to future traumatic events. Mm-hmm. This oh, really yeah, is makes, the make, key. Makes key, perfect sense. Key to intervention, right? So of the of the peer support teams that have been trained and that actually are are utilizing these resources, what's the feedback been, or, or do you know from the people yeah. that are receiving it? First of all, super busy. They're mm-hmm. using them all the time. Um, they have uh, uh, so. Let's see if I can find it here. One second. Hold on. Oh, here it is. We created a flip chart that has all the skills. I know you got some feedback here. Hold on. Okay. You with me? You with me? I'm with you. Yes. Okay. So we created a flip chart, right? This is the one for heart math, but we created a flip chart that has all the skills on there that they stick in their pocket, their vest, they pull it out. They say, you know what? Um, I'm going to do the four elements exercise with you. And even if they don't memorize it, it's all on this chart. And so you being a, a mindfulness coach because of your yoga you know, education, you know what it's like to have something that you know has been proven to be effective and that yeah. helps people. My people love it because one, they, they feel like they're effective. It's just not the thing going in, hey, how you doing? You know, we'll be all right, you know, get some sleep, drink some water, don't drink tonight, right? It's a skill where we, we know that they're going to go home with a lower level of distress and, and hopefully get better sleep. And that all aids to the processing of traumatic events. And it sounds like just from the, the explanation you've provided so far, I really see a lot of crossover in some of the mindfulness and some of the things that, that we teach in yoga classes to begin with. It sounds really similar. I mean, I know there's more to it, obviously, but it, it reminds me a lot of that. So for you to get trained in EI, it, it almost feel like a refresher course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, there are things in EMDR therapy that use like we compartmentalize, like we want officers to compartmentalize. And so we have what's called a container exercise, mm-hmm. right? I want you to put that in a container. I want you to contain what's in front of you right now. And I want you to bring it to my office tomorrow. Right? And so we do this mindfulness exercise of taking that call, that distress, putting it in something that can hold on to it so it's not all over the place for me, right? And knowing that I can take this and I have some way of identifying what's happening, what's going on for me and, and addressing it when, it when it's a better time. So, yeah. So do you, do you ever have, because I know one of the things um, that you help agencies do is make policy and you, you deal with decision makers and agency leaders. Is there ever any, because I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute, resistance? Is this kind of a quote, woo-woo? Uh, because I've heard this before. Do you ever encounter that? Oh, yeah. You know, I, what I said in the beginning, this politics involved in just treating first responders. So the state uh, is really embedded heavily in the CISD model. And, you know, and I have those 10 organizations that trust what I do. And none of the chiefs question my reasoning for staying with the EMDR, which is brand new to everybody, 
Um, and how come I'm not doing what the state is doing, right? And so the state has a, a statewide EAP, which is pushing the CISD and first responder model. No, you know, I say this to the even EMDR therapists who want to work in law enforcement. I say, listen, all your challenge for any person in a leadership position is to convince them that you're really good at what you're telling them you want to do. And you know, any good chief is going to trust you. And my chiefs trust me. As a matter of fact, they've gone to bat for me against some high level people in the state asking them, how come your organization is not buying into this? And they tell them why. And the other thing is, is that, you know, your experience, right? Now, maybe I'll use you as an example. Your experience is priceless. Your education and your skills in yoga and mindfulness is priceless. You know how to apply that and everything it does to help officers, right? That's what you rely upon, right? So um, it's a little bit outdated, but Albuquerque PD had a, a female police chief a few years ago who developed a really robust mindfulness program. And you can find it on YouTube. And just as you said earlier, you know, your, your, your tactical instructors, your firearm instructors, your use of force instructors, all sitting around a table talking about how mindfulness has made them a better dad, a better mom, right? A better friend. Why aren't we recognizing the power of being present? It's just, you know, it's just, and, and so, you know, this is, this is a gift that we have, right? We have these skills that you and I know are so effective for this population. Mm -hmm. What we still know really exists is that stigma. Mm -hmm. Oh that, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we just got to keep chugging. <laughs> I was going to say just slowly chipping away. And I, I, I've noticed since talking about all these things for almost six years now, uh, there is progress. It's slow. Um, it's, it's very counter culture. I mean, you're changing the culture. And so that takes time, but I can say that, uh, it does feel different. It's getting embraced slowly. It's, we still have a long way to go. Yeah, so, and that's exciting, right? There's a long way to go. I mean, there's, there's a lot of change that we can make and, you know, and we're all really, you know, you're really specializing in your specialty and that's what makes you good. Like, I don't want to do anything else other than do EMDR with first responders, right? I don't want to do eating disorders and that, right? You know, thinking of programming that helps a police family. So we have workshops for families, right? We have groups for wives. I actually have therapists here. One is the wife of a police officer. One is the daughter of a police officer. Now we're oh, treating love the, that. <laughs> we're treating love the that. Yeah. So, you know, we want to make sure that we are culturally competent in when we're helping families or officers deal with the stress and everything they see in this job. And, and, you know, and I think that's just what separates us a lot from the, the general EAP yeah, that's amazing because that's something um, I really think needs to happen more. And we're trying to do that at the agency I work at is really trying to to uh, in incorporate the family into the wellness program through education, resources, communication, all those things. So, right. wow, yeah. kudos to you and your your people, because that is fabulous, really. Well, you're doing the same thing. You know, you're, you're in your lane, I'm in my lane. We're both <laughs> thinking about it the same way. We know, we both understand the challenges 
right? But because we both walk the walk, right? We have the credibility to bring our brothers and sisters along and say, hey, listen, this shit really works, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, oh, oh yeah. yeah, I've been saying that for a while. So sometimes people still look at me a little crazy and, and some people get it, so. Uh, well, so real quick, and then I'm going to respect your time because we have been talking for a while, but I could keep talking to yeah. you. You're so interesting. Um, if someone wants to, in your area, or, or I guess even beyond, um, do they have to, if they want to utilize your services or your facilities, does it have to be only through their agency? Or can someone just say, hey, I want to come see you. I want you to be my therapist. Or, or how does it work? Okay. Anyone. You know, and, and for your listeners, they can contact me directly. I'll give you my personal email. It's mm -hmm. cop to cop, right? Pretty simple. C-O-P, the number two, C-O-P, cop to cop at hotmail.com. Okay. And, uh, you know, listen, I can help people find a therapist. Um, myself or my peers or some of my other staff can help people if they've got something going. Like, like I said, you know, if it's something that would be... Um, really well here's another thing right so i do a lot of workers compensation stuff right so people even other therapists or or even like a police chief if i have a question about how do i get my person the help they need and what should we look for i mean i i can help guide people in in so many different areas that's that's great information thanks for thanks for sharing that yeah and one last thing, uh, because you you keep mentioning it, is about um, finding like the right clinician in your area. If you don't mind speaking to, to listeners who aren't in Vermont, who are going to be sure. in, in different states, because that's one thing we do work on here locally in Kansas is we're really trying to come up with a vetting system yeah. so that we can do a lot of that upfront for the folks to just say, here's a checklist. We're trying to develop this checklist and a team of people that are going to quote unquote vet um, certain people in our area so that if someone wants to go look at a therapist outside of our EAP, they'll know, okay, these 10 things or these eight things were done. So, I mean, obviously you guys are, are awesome in your first responder wellness center, but for those who don't have that available, what, what do you recommend? How do you find culturally competent clinicians? So two things, right? One is that we offer a contract, a consultation contract with organizations across the country, especially for peer support. So um, I'm available for consultation. Um, I'm not here to drum up business. What I'd like people to do, and I know it can be difficult because I've had to do it myself for my out-of-state teams. Um, I, you find a certified EMDR therapist, doesn't mean they're gonna be a good fit, right? Personalities, perception, uh, beliefs, you know, um, you have to really have a desire to wanna to work with law enforcement. You have a desire to wanna to understand the culture. So the first thing I would do is go to mgr.org, right? Find a therapist, right? You're gonna get many in Kansas City, right? Oh no, you're not, you're Wichita. We, uh, we're a couple hours from Kansas City, and we, we work quite a bit with people in Kansas City, but yeah, we're, we're not right. We're a couple okay. hours away. So you're going to get a list of people, and you know, I would start with certified EMDR therapists. They have the most training, right? But doesn't mean they're the best, and you know, see who's in your area, right? Um, and then, you know, have a conversation with them. Uh, the ones that I've always contacted have always sounded very open to working with law enforcement. 
Um, and uh, I have vetted them to a degree, but it really comes down to them showing up, meeting people, doing ride-alongs, right? Mm -hmm. Riding with the cops, having the cops say, hey, I really like this person. They're easy to talk to. Um, and I think that's how you vet them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Once again, it goes back to um, knowing, liking, and trusting, and that familiarity. Right. So, exactly. and it's it's hard to find clinicians that are willing to do that, but but it's important. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you know, it's it's it can be the it can make or or break the relationship seriously, right? Yeah. You know, for me, it's um, and I always walk that fine line because I, you know, I know all of the police chiefs personally. And officers has to trust that I don't bring anything to the chief that I should not bring to the chief, right? And I always say to my clients, you know, you're my client, not the police department. You know, listen, my job is to poke the chief, <laughs> tell them what they're not doing right. And if they don't like that, they can fire me and that'd be okay too. But you know, it's very clear where my ethics lie, my ethics lie in advocating for my clients, which, which are the members, of the organizations, although the department pays to have a contract with the center, my obligation based on my license is to my client. Yeah, and that just speaks volumes with the agencies that you've contracted with, that they recognize and understand that, and that, that they put the officer's mental and emotional well-being before anything personal, what they, that they want to know what's going on. Right. Yeah, and I've had arguments with chiefs. I mean, they've mm -hmm. slammed the door and yelled at me. And I said, well, what do you want to do? You can either fire me or let me do what I just said I want to do. Or, or I need you, like I would go to them, I need you to do this. What are you doing that for, right? And, you know, some of them get tied up in, well, you know, he's been a jerk for, you know, 20 years. And I'm like, I have to say to them, but they're asking for help now. Mm -hmm. Right. I have one person, he was the most disciplined person in this police department. And I went to the chief and I said, how's that working for you? He says it's not, and I said, that's my point. My point is let's get this person the help they need. So, you know, I, I do have fun in my job, and I do respect all of the police officials that I've ever interacted with. And But what's interesting is, like, you know this. You could go into your chief's office, and you can tell him from the heart what you really think is mm -hmm. the best thing for this officer and give him that information or her that information so they can make the right decision. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we need we need people like you and me out there. Well, it's obvious that you are so passionate and care so much about police officers and first responders. And I just want to thank you for everything that you do. And I have really enjoyed talking to you. You are you're probably somebody I'm going to keep in contact with. I might, <laughs> I might kind of stalk you a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. Listen, uh, uh, really, thank you for what you do. I had a big chuckle when I saw your podcast and, and obviously the name I think is perfect. And I'm saying, why didn't I think of that? But anyway, um, there are people like you and me and Stephanie out there doing this great work. You know, we encourage more people to get in to this line of work and especially people who have done the work and, and know the benefit of it. It speaks volumes to what we say and why people believe that what we're doing is super important. Um, and, you know, listen, uh, hopefully we have a long run at this and so we can really make some profound changes in, um, in, in leadership and, and just the system of how we, you know, how we just let people, it's really tough to do this work. Well, 
Yes, and I am going to uh, make sure that everything that you mentioned, I was furiously writing things down, links um, in the show notes so that if people want to get a hold of you or contact you directly, go to your website, they'll have the ability to do that. So Sunny, thank you so much. My pleasure, seriously. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Sunny. If you find value in this episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes and want to receive our future newsletter, you can subscribe on our Podbean website. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions, or ideas for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear about.